Hello, this is Ruslan Malinovsky. Hello, this is Roman Yeremchuk. Hello, I'm Sergey Rebro. And you're listening to Ukraine Post Football. It's been an explosive past couple of weeks, none more so than in St. Petersburg this past weekend. But bringing it back to the football, we've seen disappointment at Wembley, all change at Chelsea and movement up and down the UPL table. Another action-packed edition of Ukraine Plus Football awaits for your ears only. And of course, as always, I've got Adam with me and Ray and we're going to take you through it all. And it's a long-awaited return for Ukrainian football commentator and our good friend of the pod, Dimitro Zhulai. Good evening. It's great to have you back. I know you were across in England last weekend at Wembley. How's everything been with you and what were your takeaways from last weekend? Well, uh, when Andrew texted me and mentioned that we'd be talking about the disaster at Wembley, I was really surprised. I mean, uh, considering all the circumstances, considering that we had in charge of the team, a guy who already had two jobs, considering that we were lucky to get nil in that game, remembering those two headers from Harry Maguire in the second half from corners, how can 2 nil be a disaster, Andrew? Explain it to me. It's another resounding victory for a wise man in charge of the Ukrainian Football Federation or Association, whatever he calls it. Yeah, uh, let's just say the result was a lot better than the performance. And, you know, all in all, I think Ukraine came away better off than they possibly could have done given how everything actually unfurled on the pitch. The thing is, there was no performance at all. And I was really surprised it took him so long to score the first goal. So I understand the situation. You know, you put a guy in charge who's got only one game, presumably one game, because maybe he can get a gig in June as well. We still don't know that. And you're playing against England with Gary Southgate as their manager for years now. They're well established. They're at home. They can do what they want. And they have Harry Kane up front. Okay, so that's it. But then you need to come up with a plan. And what surprised me is that you are coming up with a plan that includes some sophisticated passing out of the back. Yes, against England. Exactly. That's what you need at Wembley. Against England right now. And of course, then you don't have a midfield because <laughs> the ball hardly reaches them. And then when they actually end up in their position half, it looks like they just get lost on the way to somewhere else. And I start using those short passes in front of the box and you just don't really understand what they're trying to do and who's supposed to shoot, actually. I think you have to take some responsibility for this, though, because I, I, I honestly believe that Roslan Rotan has been listening to our podcasts in the past and he took on some of your advice just before the, the Euros in 2021. I mean, he even went as far as calling up Yevgen Konoplyanka just to create a bit of a party atmosphere, didn't he? Yeah, exactly. And he thought that probably Kenneth Planka would score again from 
25, 30 meters as in 2012. Yeah. Well, he might have as well called up Shevchenko to play up front. I think it would have been so much better. Yeah, it was very strange, all in all, the whole no, I mean, match it's day. Not, you know, it's not that strange, probably. It just when you have this one game, you probably would think that you'd start, you know, with defense and the way with Fomenko would probably approach the game. Because he drew with them nil-nil, and, and people were criticizing him for being defensive and all that stuff, but he drew nil-nil. Imagine nil-nil in that game. And even if you're playing out of the back, you know, you have to be then braver than you were. And that's the thing. And then we we can talk about the wingers and stuff, and but they, they hardly got the ball in the right conditions. I'm not even talking about Yeremchuk, whoever in that position, <laughs> Dovbik, anyone, wouldn't be getting enough service. So, yeah, it's always, you know, on the game day of the national teams, for so many times, the the the, the 90 plus minutes are probably the worst that you can imagine. Yeah, the whole atmosphere was, you know, around Wembley, I feel everyone was relatively positive pre-kickoff and then, yeah, the actual performance on the pitch uh, left a lot to be desired. And, and, and as you said, I, we were talking earlier this week, Mitra, and you... I mentioned that it sort of reminded me of uh, Fomenko days, but you actually pointed out that Fomenko was actually probably more exciting in attack in terms of his football with when Konopianka yeah. and Yadvolenko were up there and even Zorzulia sort of seemed to have more of an impact back then in the game than any of Ukraine's front three because of exactly what you've been mentioning, passing from the back. And then when Ukraine had a bit of... I don't know, momentum going forward. And there was like, it was sort of like second get second guessing where to put the ball, whether to cross it. No, there was next to no crosses at all in the game, which was really just peculiar. And then they end up passing it back to the halfway line for Matt Vienko, so I thought. And it was sort of, that really even harked back to like the mid 2000s for Kriana, like when they were playing in sort of friendlies and things like that, where, you know, that sort of typical if the team's a bit better than us, let's not bother. And I, and I felt that that probably undermarked the whole game, that it wasn't sort of a fearlessness. It was more cont- containing a lot of fear. And we, we've seen, again, kind of I have probably not the best fullback to have defensively. McCollumcore, slightly out of his depth as well. Um, and, you know, to be honest, the best player for me in that whole sort of defensive line was probably Svatok played actually relatively relatively okay for for a debut um didn't really do too much wrong and you know that's that's all we've got to give and the irony is is that he probably won't be featuring too much in the future because Zabani will be back so we'll, we'll see what happens I guess in June so there has been loads of rumors uh over the past few weeks relating to who's going to be in charge in June, be it Rotain, whether he'll stay on, then take charge of the under-21s, and then following that, take the Spielner job full-time because he's expected to leave the under-21s job if he doesn't make the Olympics next summer anyway. Or we've also seen lots of news relating to the fact that Serhid Abrov is not in any new talks with UAF. They're sort of at the same position that they always have been, and that's problematic because Viktor Vatsko has added the fact that two 
clubs that regularly perform in the Champions League group stages are also interested in Serhida Brov. So if they come in with a decent offer, if he's currently kept comfortable working in the club game, then I'm sure he might be considering those. And then on top of all of that, coming out of Fabrizio Romano, is that Slaven Bilic, the ex-West Ham manager, most recently Watford manager, recently sacked from there. And obviously most well-known for being the Croatia manager for, I think, 2006, 2012. Famously beat uh, England at Wembley, uh, Steve McLaren, the umbrella era. He is close to beginning talks with Uaf overtaking uh, the role of Zbirna. He's one of the candidates per se. And you never know if Brov is considering these other club roles at the moment, then possibly we might be seeing Slavin Bilic come in, whether that will be in June or whenever. I don't know, but something to certainly keep an eye out on for. Do you think we'll actually have any answers? Because look, uh, this game, it was kind of forfeited before it was even played. That's why they appointed Rotan for this one game, because they thought it's England away, they have no chance. So, okay, we'll just go, we'll do something. And any other result, any positive result would have been a miracle. And they would have said that that's because of us and our wise planning. So now those two, North Macedonia and Malta, we're talking of the necessity. We're talking about six out of six. How can we get them? We're playing away at Skopje. It's not easy to play there. We beat them in the European Championship, blah, blah, blah. But it was uh, two years ago. And it was a different team. And it was a team with a manager who, who had spent a few years. That's uh, about proper preparation, about manager instilling his ideas. It took Shevchenko a whole cycle, right? Because the first one for the World Cup was not the best, let's say. <laughs> And then it, it only worked in the qualifiers for Euro 2020. So, I don't know. That came in Skopje. looks really tricky. I mean, for me, as a non-Ukrainian, you know, although I've spent many years in Ukraine, some of the reaction after the game was overly pessimistic, in particularly the criticisms of Mikhailo Modric. Uh, I thought a couple of times early on in the game, he actually was a chance for him to get him behind and show what, what his strengths are. I mean, Ray, you're a bit like me. You're slightly removed from it at the moment down there in Argentina. What were your feelings towards everything that went on last week? Uh, yeah, last week was, um, well, we were salvaged. I mean, we were rescued in the end when Ivan Blanca stepped on the pitch. I mean, I'm pretty sure he saved us from one or two goals for sure. That's all I remember from the game. And that's the, really a work of a mastermind of coaching class. And uh, I mean, yet today, you know, the news today, right? The, the recent news in club football is that Chelsea manager is sacked. And who do you call? You know, the name, it's, it includes two R's, you know? So um, I cannot say much about that because it's been, you know, it's been a while. And uh, this game was, as we've been talking, it's been one of a kind. Um, Maybe it's uh, it reminds me of the games when uh, we had two coaches at the same time for national team. Remember 20, 2013, I guess, after blocking before Fomenko. And that those two games cost us the chances on the World Cup, basically. However, Fomenko did it to playoffs in France. But then again, 
And those were really um, pretty much the same level of the teams to which uh, we have now. There was Montenegro and... Um, Moldova. Uh, thank you. And now we have Malta and North, North Macedonia. So it's anything but, you know, and um, I don't want to make any predictions. I feel like um, I feel like Zbirna didn't get anything from this particular cycle. Can you say that? Nothing. And guys just had a good time. I'm going to disagree with you. I'm I'm going to put a name out there who did impress me on the pitch, Kyogi Sudikov, who I thought, you know, he's starting to show himself as a. He's still how old is he now? Has he turned twenty yet? Uh, not quite sure, but he's showing himself as a international ready player of the future. I don't know what what was your take on his performance, Dimitra? No, I agree with you, uh, and we, we can talk about names, but it is so much better than those names are put into a structure when you actually understand what is happening on the pitch. But Andrew said about crosses, but I was wondering how many touches our fullbacks had in their position half. Probably Sobel was the first one to do it when he came onto the pitch in the second half. So it was a one-off game, a pretty weird situation. And let's hope that if Vatan is there for those two, they will have some more time and they can actually prepare properly and play some more structured game against different opponents as well. Because, yeah, like I agree also with Andrew that Svartokon, his debut, was actually he did what he could. You couldn't really expect more from him in that situation when you have other players who they experience international experience and they're not doing much, especially in defense. I really love the Karavayev gesture when uh, Harry Kane scored. When actually uh, Harry Kane was behind him and he just <laughs> moved in front of him, he scores and then Karavayev just turns and just, what, what, what just happened? <laughs> And we're talking about the guy who had how many caps now he has. I think he's coming up to 50 or so. I'm not sure. And to be honest, the worst thing about Karavayev is that he can be dependable a lot of the time, but it's just inconsistent when it comes to the defence. Yes. Obviously, he's not actually a fullback, and I think that was all plain to see. And the worst bit was, was that with Malinovsky in front of him at right mid, it was like the worst possible combination to have uh, of two players on that side, neither with any sort of serious pace. Kind of, I have okay. He loves to play on the overlap. That's one of his sort of favorite things, and he just wasn't able to do that at all because every time Malinovsky got it or didn't get it, um, that just was sort of prevented. And then, you know, even in the second half, Rafan sort of was throwing on these random subs where. Zinchenko in the end ended up playing right back for the final 20 minutes or something. It's like, what what was the plan here? And I mean, they had a week to prepare. Yeah, I understand that rapanya uh, has got literally two other jobs to prepare for in the same space. With Alexandria, he was literally just coming out of going straight there. And all the majority of his staff are the same from his Alexandria job. So they similarly have got zero time to prepare up until... Oh. It comes to it comes to sort of the national team week. And that, that 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 let's imagine he says no when he said you're gonna be the national team. Yeah, never gonna happen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. But that's what he should have said. 
pointing out that he had two teams already. But then again, who, who 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 would be the manager then for this particular game? It's such a mess the way the football is run. And actually, you have to remember that we were very close to not playing the game at all after the court decision to remove Pavelko or whatever, to suspend him as a head of the federation. If that had been an official decision, right, uh, the federation would have been disqualified immediately, according to UEFA and FIFA rules, because it would have been an interference from uh, outside into the footballing matters. Which all, it's, that's a whole another level of conversation, isn't it, about... Yeah. Uh, the whole it, stru- stru- it, it, structure it, it, it and mess. It affects directly the national team and the whole yeah. qualifying cycle because we didn't do well in the Nations League. We don't have a guaranteed place in the playoffs. We might still get it because there is a chance because, of course, Scotland started with six out of six. Come on. <laughs> you, you wouldn't go tonight without me, would you? Yeah. There are only two teams, I think, kept up with a brilliant level of football. France and England who also on six out of six, I think, yeah. Okay. <laughs> oh yeah. But, but look, oh, seriously, uh, our only chance probably now is the playoffs. Well, it needs to become the focus as well. You know, as you said, going into the June games, not dropping those points. Not, not, only, dropping, not only dropping points, but you know, uh, building something, finding the model, yeah. what you want to play, who you want to play with, in what position. If it means that probably in the national team you can only use Zinchenko in the middle, okay, just make sure he plays in the middle. If Malinovsky as well, he, he's, he's not the one to play on the wing. We, we saw it in the European Championship. He was put on the left in one of the games. So just make those decisions. Even Yeah, you, you can have some issues like injuries and stuff, but have this clarity. And then even we don't if we don't get enough points, at least the team might be prepared and ready for the for the playoffs. And I mean, just before we move on, I feel that just to wrap this whole bit up, the fact that Malinovsky did start right mid and Sahankov didn't, based on his entire form. Yeah, I know he had a cold or something in the week, but he still played uh, forty-five minutes look, against. What, 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 I, what, what I loved about it, Andrew, is that uh, we were told that we thought that England would would be tired. And then Sigan Cole would come on, and I was like, "How did you want to get him tired by laughing at the way you were defending?" What? And I, just, <laughs> I don't understand. Like, this is such an outdated concept, you know. To wait until the opponents are tired, really, and you won't be tired, no? Yeah, makes even more of a question as to why Mudrik started in that case. May as well throw them both on uh, for the final twenty minutes to try and uh, run those legs. Yeah, and kind of yeah. as well. I've been studying Graham Potter's mode uh, management I, over over the last few months. So, Mikhail Modric obviously went to Chelsea, started off on left wing, got put back to left back, then moved into a, a false number nine, and now everyone's expecting him to be a world beater, no matter what position he's he's been asked to play. In. It's it, it, I mean, 
I have to say, uh, you know, Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank, he's a centre forward of my era, and he, he is the sort of model of what you would expect a centre forward to be, not Mikhail Mudrick. It was quite pleasing to hear him speak up in defence for him after he had a difficult time in the new position. Now, Andrew, you watched the game closely. It's got to feel sorry for him. I've got, but before we bring you in, obviously, congratulations on your excellent interview with him for Sky Sports News uh, last week as well. Thanks, Adam. Yeah, that was, it was an interesting sort of sit down, very brief, 15 minutes, really, to have a chat with him. I mean, he's not going to be saying too much at the moment because I guess he's not done too much. And I feel that he probably wants to let his football do the talking, really. But obviously, that's not working out for him early doors. And I feel that obviously because of the fee, everything is sort of accentuated in relation to him. So obviously, there's going to be massive pressure, massive magnifying glass on everything that he does. Um, and then you add to that the sort of very questionable, weird tactics and structure setup that Potter has been playing over the past two months that Mudrik has been there. Mudrik arrived, of course, against Liverpool, came on in the final 20 minutes against a very tiring, uh, tired James Milner, played really well. Everyone saw what he could bring, but bear in mind he still hadn't played a full 90 minutes of Premier League football at all, or any football that is, since the previous November. Then, after that Liverpool debut, he had two months, he had two weeks off before he started against Fulham, where he was ill. He just literally did nothing in that in that first half when he was subbed off straight away, which was another bizarre decision from Potter. Why did he start him if if so be it that he was not feeling hundred percent? But I understand that at the time felt he had a lot of injuries in that position. Sterling wasn't fully fit. Pulisic wasn't doing too well. Mason Mount was playing in some weird either left wing or left attacking mid, whatever. No one really knew what was going on. Then he played against West Ham, showed glimpses, also subbed off around 60 minutes. Out of the team after the Borussia Dortmund match for, for a number of games, flung in against Leicester, centre forward, played quite well. Let's not let's not lie. He scored the goal. Obviously, was disallowed. Then he got the assist, and he just seemed to be getting back in the mood. And then the next two games before the international break, on the bench again, didn't feature in both. Chelsea were a bit more positive in their performance and display. And then we had the international break. We saw how he played against England. Just couldn't get into the game at all. Was trying to do more of what he's been was doing at Shakhtar a bit when he couldn't go out too wide trying to cut in, trying to drive through the middle. And similarly, he had just had no one to feed into because Yadimchuk was completely isolated slash, you know, every touch that Yadimchuk makes at the moment completely goes anywhere and everywhere. And then on the other wing, Malinovsky was nowhere to be seen in terms of sort of a forward position that was going to play a ball in or, or something else. So that was extremely difficult. And then against Aston Villa, he starts again because of a number of injury issues and fitness problems. Starts as this sort of weird centre-forward, false nine slash left wing, but nowhere, never ever got anywhere near the, the left-hand side. Played in a number of times, had some good chances where, yeah, even Hasselbank admitted that he should have done better. But 
it's it, it it just doesn't seem that he's in sort of the perfect mode. He's not Matt Sharp. That's hundred percent certain. Uh, coming off on like fifty-seven, etc. He's I don't know. There's just no consistency to Mudrik's uh, time at Chelsea so far, and that I think is the biggest problem. If he does get a run in the team, even if it's a substitute appearance, you know, four games in a row where he comes on in the final twenty minutes, knows exactly what he's doing. Twenty minutes is like a left winger. You know, come run at the team. At least he'll sort of, I don't know, start to understand his teammates a bit more. Because even still, they don't really, they've been training together a lot. But in game, the sort of the passes are off. The players don't know how to read each other properly in terms of Mudrik and everyone else around him and vice versa. So we'll have to wait and see what's going to come next now that Potter is gone. Uh, Nagelsmann, apparently the favourite. Is he going to play well under him as well? Because there's been questions raised at Bayern that Sane and Mane, obviously the wingers that he had at his disposal there, they weren't playing too well either. And he did he doesn't really utilise wide men as effectively. He tries to go in for sort of the more inverted, more sort of central attacking midfielders. So, I mean, until Chelsea get like a proper centre forward in and obviously get in, Nagelsmann so he can actually instill what he wants to bring in which won't be until the summer minimum I don't think in terms of proper six weeks pre-season everyone sort of getting some time under their belt and sort of assessing the situation um, this season I think I mean I wouldn't expect too much from Mudrik towards the end of it but I hope that he can pick up some form and show something I know that Dimitrov is obviously commentating on Premier League games all the time. What's your sort of analysis on the whole situation? Well, if we talk about those chances he had against Aston Villa, the first one, it's fine. Colomboni was in the same situation, but it's Debu. It's the greatest goalkeeper of all time. He saved it. He saved it against Colomboni when everybody saw it in the net, he saved it again. So he kind of understands now what Colomboni felt after the World Cup final. <laughs> but look, second chance, it shows you that the guy's very low on confidence. You don't even get into the box. You try to shoot, you kind of put your foot the way it's not supposed to be there. It's a very weak shot, just basically straight to the, into the hands of the goalkeeper. And you're through, you're one-on-one. On one. Just how he scored those in Shakhtar. He would rip the net off with a strike just a few months ago. Just remember in the Champions League when he was scoring in the Champions against Celtic. They call he scored against Celtic. So, of course, uh, you need a lot of confidence, especially in a club like that. You mentioned the price. That's the most ridiculous thing about it. But, well, you have to deal with it. You know. And also you mentioned another very important thing. They don't have a striker. And it's not Porter's problem. It's Tuchel's problem who signed his friend, Aubameyang. It's uh, the baseball guy problem who decided probably that he needed more pitchers and not strikers. <laughs> That's about striking. This game is about strikes. It's, and it's, it's a different kind of strike. So you, you just really, you, you really needed to send to forward. Kai Havertz, again, he's it, almost in the same boat as Mudrik. He's trying to do what he can, but well, he's not uh, Goal scorer, the way Hasselbank was for them back in the day. I'm not even talking about guys like Drogba. <laughs> just 
So you don't have a striker, so of course Porto tries to find something. And they, even against Aston Villa, the way they started the game, how they put him under pressure, they moved without the ball pretty well. They had those chances. They just didn't score the goal. And Villa took their chances easily. And and of course, they, another issue for, for, with Porto is that he doesn't understand that the only thing that Cucurella has as a centre-half is uh, Carlos Puyol's hair, and that's it. You can't you can't use him in that position, but he's still using him. And then he's putting Reese James in there instead of using him on the flank. But okay, these are the decisions. But still, I have a lot of sympathy for for for, for Graham, and uh, I think he's a great manager. He he will do well. I just the circumstances combine that way, and uh, now we have to understand who is the manager, how he's going to play, because the season's gone. They're not making the top four, right? So you have all those only 10, 11 games left. Uh, but you also have the Champions League. And then suddenly it might be different because the season is not gone if you're in the semifinals of the Champions League, if you're closer to winning it and then uh, sneaking through the back door that way. Now, thinking about it, probably being fourth in the league is more of the back door than winning the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> sort of mine went back to... Di Matteo's team when when they won it back in, when was it, 2012? The ugliest winners yep. of the European Cup ever. And who cared? And he's still, he's a hero for it. 1988 PSV, who's hitting PSV, probably they were the same. With all those draws and the penalties against Benfica in the final. But yeah, Di Matteo was actually at the game. He was presented with John Terry mm-hmm. before the game. And of course, people were applauding him because he was the first one to win it for them as a manager. Putting the lens back on Modric for a minute before we jump on. I, for me, the reason why we talk about him, in, in my eyes, um, he's the most exciting young Ukrainian talent that there is at the moment. Would you, Jen, just moving around the room, would you agree with that? Is there anyone else who's more exciting for the future of the national team that I'm missing. Uh, Andrew, you're nodding along in agreement there. I mean, in terms of sort of the mercurial talent that we saw, the the performances that he put in at Shakhtar in the Champions League, I don't think there is anyone as exciting. The fact of the matter is we have to now wait and see whether he can relay that at Chelsea at club form to try and then progress that into obviously Zbirna uh, and and beyond that. But but like we've said, we, we need to wait and see who actually gets announced as the new manager. Nagelsmann is the favourite and how, how he works under him will obviously be another matter. And for me, one of the things is, well, the last thing that he needs is when his eyes turn back to Ukraine because he's getting a rough ride through the British press at the moment, is then when it's national national team times, it'll be in the time, um, to see the negativity there as well. And it's, you know, as, as Dimitro rightly said, he's a player that thrives on confidence. We've seen him now with the lack of it. We've seen him at Shakhtar with it. And for the best of Zabina, he's going to need that confidence when putting on the shirt and stepping out, representing the national team going forward. And we all have a part to play in that. You know, some of the comments that have come out are, are for me, are wrong if you are wanting the best for the national team. 
I've said my piece. <laughs> <laughs> All right, ladies and gentlemen, let's uh, let's move on, shall we? Uh, the title race got interesting this weekend, didn't it? Uh, did anybody manage to see what happened in Odessa? I heard it was quite foggy. I, uh, Ray, what actually went on there? Shakhtar played Chernomorris in Odessa. 2-2 is the result. Everything was settled in the first half. Uh, one of the goals, it was even disallowed by Leferenko. And I wanted to mention this guy before because he was, he's been doing a good job over there. As well as the um, some guys from Inholand, which who we are going to talk about later. But yeah, well, that cost Shakhtar uh, his advantage over um, the team from Dnipro City, and that's why uh, now it's one point between first and second spot in UPL. A uh, great goal scored by Kriski in the first minute of the match. It's just like one of those classic goals when you start from the center half and you just go ahead while the other team hasn't awaken yet and you just score from the first shot and that was great but you know it didn't uh it didn't have an end product uh good result for turner in their relegation battle as we discussed before we have the title race now and the other 11 teams which is um turner on 11 spots with 19 points however still only two points away from the relegation zone so it's all up for grabs over there and adding up to PFL restarting next week, well, probably the best two months we are about to have this year so far. I'll go as far as saying that. I've got to ask you, Ray, um, Grigor Chuk, is he finally starting to instill some quality into the Chonomoritz team from what you've seen? I think the only reason Chonomoritz has been playing so well is when they stuck over the uh, betting company logo with Slava Zesu, Slava Ukrainian with Ukraine. That was the best decision they made this season, and it pays off. It's good to hear. Good to hear. In, Andrew, I know you've spoken quite passionately about uh, Artem Dobbik over the last few months. He's had a good weekend, hasn't he? Uh, a hat-trick for him, up to 15 goals in the UPL. Uh, hat-trick, I think, was sort of under 10 minutes, uh, scored from the first to the third goal in the second half. Relatively comfortable victory over the Metalist 1925 in Kovalyovka. And as Ray just mentioned, Dnipro won our way back into the title race. Just one point off Shakhtar. And both played the same amount of games. So it's going to be interesting to see possibly the clash between the both of them in the second half of the season could be the title clincher. We'll, we'll have to wait and see, but that's going to be very exciting. Um, what date? Do we know what date it is? Or the end of May? It's the penultimate round of the season. Is going to be, you know, this. I, if anything, ironically, given the circumstances of the current situation, Ukraine finds itself in with the war, and obviously everyone's saying that the quality of football has dropped dramatically. We've lost loads of foreign players. Um, the quality in general has all gone downhill. But this is probably the most exciting Ukrainian Premier League season ever in my opinion. With the amount of games we've got left, of course, it could all change. But has it has the title race ever been really this tight, other than the golden goal season? Let's not put No, it of course. <laughs> 2001, when Shakhtar and Dinamo went into the last round, and Dinamo were down 1-0 against Dnipro until 85th minute, I think, and then this match, and then Milashenko scored two goals. That was one, that was pretty tight. Then, of course, we had the golden 
match in 2006. But since then, probably, I don't know, I don't remember. We'd we, we need to check that. Has there been some sort of memo sent around Europe this weekend to all centre-forwards assigned to Dynamo Kiev that they must score goals on this over this weekend? Because, it, am I right? I mean, my stats might be out, but Dynamo centre-forwards have scored more goals this weekend than they have during the entire 2023 calendar year so far. Look, uh, uh, 19 games played in the league, 27 goals scored. This champagne football from the experienced manager is winning hearts and minds over Europe. Fourth in the table. I mean, well, why do you need centre-forwards? Like, it's so outdated. It's, it's, it's not for this brilliant manager. And even Artem Besedin's got on the, the score sheet. This so week. now you have to drink before doing the podcast. <laughs> you did. Cheers, guys. Is it angry, Phil? This one's for you. What have I got left? <laughs> <laughs> We're still waiting on Supriaka, but I'm sure that the fact that Besedin's broken his 707 day drought. Let's just put it that that's almost two years, right? That's just insane. Obviously, he had a bit of a drugs ban and injuries during that whole time. In, in terms of, uh, in, in general, great to see that. A banger of a goal as well, 30 yards out. Help from by a deflection and some suspect goalkeeping. But on top of that, Roman Bezos also inspired um, by some divine intervention too, when he came off the bench, <laughs> putting an assist. So, you know, Omonia, like I said, blue and yellow makes green and uh, it's certainly paying off out there in Cyprus. Um, moving on to Zoria, for me, they're probably another team in the league that are sneaking up on the title race. In my opinion, I think Dynamo. Let's let's be honest. I don't think they're going to be really challenging for it. There, there are a few points off of Zoria already. I think four, and then to get to the get to get to the other two, another three or four. So we can discard them. And just from the way that they're playing, yes, they got a win against FC Lviv, but you know that doesn't really say much in the grand scheme of things. Um, Zoria though looked free scoring, um, playing some exciting enough football under Van Leeuwen and I mean they've got enough attacking prowess in my opinion you know just across the board there Porahili they brought in from Shakhtar on loan the under 19 top scorer um, they've got this Guerrero guy who's been playing really well pretty exciting and been impressing Buletza looks to be in some decent form of late which obviously a lot of people have been hoping for for a number of years um, and even the Zadi Rusin is like scoring consistently, something that Dynamo could never get out of the guy. So <laughs> evidently, well, there's another ex-Dynamo centre-forward per se <laughs> that's, been, that's been scoring this weekend. So it's in general um, exciting stuff. And I mean, I feel that Zoria still have got both of those guys ahead of them to play. They have played a game more, but, you know, towards the end of the season, it could all add up and um, make for an exciting end. And I don't think that Zoria at this moment in time are going to be 
caring for a, a bronze over a silver as they did a few years ago, which was slightly dampened dampened the sort of exciting end to the campaign. Um, so this time round, I think it should be a bit more, bit more challenging and a bit more exciting. And just before we move on to some of the other sides, worth mentioning that uh, Dnipro Din, when they were playing against um, Metalist Nine Twenty Five, they were playing against uh, caretaker manager Edmar, and Edmar during the international break took on an internship slash some sort of course at Arsenal. Where he was invited by his good friend uh, Edu Gaspar. I'm not entirely sure what he learned there, but I think he sat in on a few training sessions of Arteta's, um, did a number of other bits, also went to see England versus Ukraine at Wembley. Um, and hopefully, maybe that might have some influence over it. But it seems like Metalist 925 are trying to progress in some sort of way. Made a nice April Fool's Day joke. Uh, this past weekend, where they said they signed 40-year-old Clayton Javier. Um, sadly, that would have been amazing to see in the UPL, but sadly it was just a just a joke. And also Dinamo Kiev's opponents, FC Lviv, they have brought back the Immortal One. The Immortal One is back from the dead. Uh, Besmertny has taken over there for a second stint. Uh, not the best start, not the best of starts, but, um, you know, 15 new players, brand new manager, about 10 games to go, bottom of the table. What could go wrong? Exactly, exactly. It's a real shame. Oh, and we will all miss them. Not. Um, we need to make a little U-turn back to Rosalind Rotan, because, of course... He started off last weekend with a defeat, jumped on the plane over to Italy to take charge of the under-21s, another defeat. And we were we were very curious to see if he'd get the trifecta this weekend when he came back to managing the UPL for Alexandria. They were up against Vorskla. And, I mean, Alexandria have been doing rather, rather well, drawn a lot of games, and <laughs> every game, in fact, since Rotan took over, and they finally got the victory on the board to fully cement themselves there in fifth place. I'm right, uh, just probably a little too far off, looking a little higher. I'll need Dinamo or Soria in particular to fall apart a bit if they're going to move up. But as Ray, you mentioned earlier, the other 11 are that little bit removed that they're probably quite comfortable there in fifth place. Do you get? I mean, Krivbas, they had a good result this weekend, am I right, Ray? That's true. Uh, another defeat from Veres, and we've been talking about them plenty uh, in recent parts. Same same old story. And um, Krivbas uh, are comfortable with 25 points currently. They can take a little breath. Same as Infolets, actually. They beat Minai. And um, in the as a comeback, actually, they performed a comeback and they are playing Warsaw next um, match day. And if they have at least a point there, they might as well be more comfortable than the other guys. So good for them. Uh, one good thing about um, like two matches, Minai and Gulets and Metalist Colos. Metalist Colos, as you, Adam, uh, labeled it unwatchable. 
But uh, two things I uh, figured out from uh, those two games is that in Minai, they're promoting Ukrainian movies in the stadium. There is a, a ad board saying a movie called Luxembourg, Luxembourg, a new comedy is being premiered in Ukraine. And I hope it's going to be available worldwide at some point. It's been uh, some time in uh, production. So it's great that we can I can see that in a football game. But with Metalist, is that how did they stick over, what did they stick over Homa logo? Because they obviously did. And I couldn't figure out what it was. So that's a mystery for me. I'll be looking at their match next uh, match day. But as we know, Metalist Simple, not Metalist not 25, is uh, rather a in a survival mode currently. Definitely so. That was... Uh... A very poor game on on Saturday afternoon. I sat down to watch, but I, I stuck at it. I got to the end of the nil-nil and, yeah, wished I hadn't. <laughs> Never mind. Let's, let me just add in there. Uh, the covering of the Joma logo for FC Metalist is just an added uh, extension of their Favbet ad, which says, um, be inside the game. So it's not as creative, sadly, as Kriv Bas, who on their jackets and training gear have added, Kriv, we are Kriv Bas. They're also Rusni Pizda on their actual kit. And then on top of that, Karpate have gone on to write on theirs, we will win on their kit to, to cover the Joma logo. So it'll be interesting to see how other teams react to that, whether... UAF will come out with a new kit or something in June. Seems unlikely, but, you know, exciting times, really, in terms of how Ukrainian teams and Ukrainian clubs are sort of being impacted by different decisions that are relating to the war and everything that's happening um, and how clubs are taking that upon themselves and how others might not be. We should expect a huge blast in uh, a, a football kids market after that season because wow, there's plenty of collectibles. You're, you're quite right there, and I mean, it has to be said. Any clubs listening to this, make your kits more readily accessible for the international market. So many people want to purchase them, and they don't know where to turn, and it's it's a real frustration you know for 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 the international market that yeah these things aren't easily accessible i understand there's a cost involved but you you will push your brand push your club into new corners Talking about new corners, I'm going to make a very, very tight link there. Zabina could be moving into new corners in terms of naturalisation. And um, obviously, right, right, uh, before we dive in, Ilya Zabani finally made the bench, hopefully going to get his EPL debut sometime soon. And looking towards June, we would hope he'd be fit enough to slot back in on the right side of the fence, as Andrew mentioned earlier. 
But Christian Ravage is a name that sort of popped up into media over the last week. Ukrainian father, Kazakh mother, uh, been playing in Belgium for Segla Bruges. Had a very impressive season and has caught the eyes of a number of people. And if I'm right so far, there is some hope that he may consider taking on Ukrainian nationality to help bolster the defence. And he's still eligible for the under-21s at the age of of 20. He said he's open to talks with the UAF. Um, Am I right, Andrew? What's the general sort of stage we're at at the moment? And then I want to open it out to Dimitra and Ray, because after having had the Brazilian era of Zabina, what's the sort of mood generally regarding naturalisation and players representing Zabina? Well, just to follow on from that, Adam, uh, Christian Ravic, of course, he's, so he's half Ukrainian, born in Belgium, raised there, lived there his whole life. I think his his dad is from Zakarpatia. Um, he is uh, a player who is a part of ProStar agency. So I think he's got connections with Serebrenikov and Yashchuk, who both played in Belgium. Hence, I think the connections there. And basically, this has all sort of arisen. I've, I've sort of been keeping tabs on him for a while, but I never knew what his actual connections to Ukraine were because he's been playing for like Belgium under 17s, Belgium under 18s, Belgium under 19s. Hasn't played for Belgium under 21s yet. Obviously, he's been playing fairly regularly for Circle Bruges this season. I think 23, 24 appearances uh, in all competitions and he's one of their starting centre-backs in a back three, as far as I'm aware. And basically this week, Ukrainsky Football uh, website, publication did an interview with him and this is sort of the first sort of open mic where he was allowed to say you know who he is and what connection he's got to Ukraine and when asked about whether Uaf or someone you know has been in touch with him about potential for playing for Ukraine he said that currently there's been no connection no contact thus far and I guess for the time being, we'll have to wait and see whether there will be some sort of connection, whether anyone even knew about him or or, or anything like that. But, um, you know, it's articles like these that sometimes, especially in Ukraine, do end up having an influence on things in the long run. So um, let's see what happens in the future, because, I mean, he seems to be quite a promising young player. Well, I'm just interested in one thing. When we talk about this, how is it done? Explain it to me technically. The guy has a Belgian passport. He's supposed to get a Ukrainian passport, right? Because otherwise he can't represent Ukraine. How does he get it? What does he do with his Belgian citizenship? Because if he has Ukrainian citizenship, he's not supposed to have Belgian citizenship. And it applies to anyone else. If Max Kilman had not played for England in futsal and would have been available to play for the national team. Because it is different, you know, when a Brazilian like Ejimar or a Serbian like Devic playing in Ukraine, five years in Ukraine, they naturalized, okay, they, they can play for the national team. In this situation, we have to understand what the legal procedure is for the person involved. 
For us, of course, we, we, we'd get them because look, now in Europe, in Italy, in Spain, especially in those, in Portugal, there are lots of kids who grew up there, kids of Ukrainian parents who immigrated like 20 years ago, more than 20 years ago. Because I remember when we arrived in 2001 to play Boavista in the Champions League in Porto, and they were building all that stuff for the European Championship 2004. There were a lot of Ukrainian builders in there. So it was 2001. Imagine that their kids are already grown up now, and some of them probably playing football. And they would be eligible to play for Ukraine. But how do you do that? And when he says that no one contacted him, it doesn't surprise me at all. Because uh, in 2019, when I was preparing for the... Uh, under 20 World Cup, and it was in Poland. I was reading about these camps they have in Germany every single year for boys and girls of Polish descent. They're preaching to them how important it is to play for Poland, even though they're in Germany now, even though they uh, might have German citizenship and stuff. We just don't have that. And right now we have a lot of kids there to 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 keep an eye on. In Europe and in South America as well. And it is, it is even more complicated, of course, because when you have Hamenchenko from Peñarol, probably his grandparents immigrated to Uruguay, God knows when. But we we just don't have anyone in our federation, association, whatever, doing this, this kind of work. They're too busy with what they're doing. Well, we don't know what exactly they're doing, of course. I mean, it is something that the federation's going to have to consider moving forward and We've seen so many children uh, move across the world over the last 12 months in particular. I remember Roman Bebek going back to our, our first pod post uh, the escalation. Um, it wasn't a pod, was it? It was a Twitter space when, when he referred to the potential to lose a generation like Albania and uh, Bosnia and Croatia, although Croatia had done rather well. You know, we have young children who moved across in the 90s and now representing Switzerland. And, and here I am in Luxembourg, and the Luxembourgish national team is a mix of Serb Croats and Portuguese. Um, it is something that needs to go higher up on the priority list, I think, for these people who are too busy to do things that nobody knows about uh, moving forward, because it's it, it, it should be a, should be a way... Not not should be a way, but it's going to be important to maintain a good selection pool for Zabina players. We've got the PFL restarting next week. Ray, I know you're it's an Avalon's fan. Looking forward to it. How's how's it shaping up? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm pleased to say that tonight we have two Obolan residents uh, in the pod, right, Mitra? Uh, former residents, maybe, but um, yeah, uh, PFL is coming back. Obolan is leading their group with 16 points. They're matched with Polisa, the financial giants, the F Chelsea FC of uh, Persia Liga and PFL this season. Uh, overhyped, in my opinion, but let's see how it turns out. Obolon is known to lose points with small teams, and there's a huge gap between uh, teams in their group. 16 points for the leaders and two points for Kremlin, who are the number eight, and also eight points for LNZ, who, who are going third. 
um, a little bit of a, um, a battle that looks out to be because uh, it's, it's still unpredictable. It's, it can go either way. Also, some interesting uh, prospects in the relegation zone. Persia Liga, we have F- FCK Mariupol, and they recently played against uh, Obolan Ac- Academy team, Zmina, and they trashed it uh, 6-0. But <laughs> let's see how it helps them to climb out of the relegation zone in the other group of Persia. Same as Dinaz, uh, Bukovina, and Prikarpatia. FC Chernihiv, of course, are the leaders of the relegation group, and they might as well be joining the top next season, but let's see if the format changes, you know, because Druha Liga, on the other hand, they only have 10 teams in the um, division and there are Niva Buzova, a small village team leading with 27 points, Real Pharma from Odessa are second, also Chaika from Kiev Oblast, number three, and Niva Vinica uh, is matched up with them by points number uh, in fourth position. Still (laughs) an interesting sight to see, um, unfortunately, um, FC Hoost, I don't think they're going to be, you know, going up this season. Hoost City, as you know, as we know them. Uh, but their president uh, spoke in an interview and he wants to see the battle in every match as, it, as if it's the final one. So why not? Uh, remember, these guys were playing in their neighborhood last year. And by unfortunate circumstances by, uh, for the country, but obviously fortunate for them, they're now in the professional division. And who knows, maybe we'll be looking at more changes after the end of this season. But so far, as I said, they're going to be a hell of competition. And for people listening at home, I, if you log into the PFL website, there's always links to the live games which have been streamed through YouTube and as always I have to commend the teams in Persia and Druva for making sure that games are accessible to the international audience for as long as I've been following Ukrainian football there's always been a game to watch and very easy to be able to watch them as well so yeah mate, do make sure you tune in and watch what should be some very interesting close battles in the in the running over the next few months. I think we've got there. That shot didn't hit me too bad. I'm still still fighting the good fight. Um, yeah, that's it for tonight, everyone. I hope you've all enjoyed it as much as I have. As always, I only wanted to mention, because we, we, did, we didn't mention it before, uh, under-17s and under-19s, but we were talking about kids from different places, uh, Ukrainian kids in different places, but those... Who are playing for Ukraine now? Under 17s, under 19s, gloriously failed in their elite round uh, competitions, and it was okay for under 19s because they were up against Spain. But under 17s, they lost to Ireland, lost to Italy, beaten three 0 by Ireland. Fifteen year old kid scored a hat trick against them, and uh, after the first game, they only won against Cyprus. I did expect a bit more. But no, we won't be playing under-17 European Championship and under-19, so it's only under-21s for us in the summer, unfortunately. Where is Patrick or when we need him? In Armenia, shouting at journalists. Doing what he does best. Doing what he does best. Uh, Ray, Andrew, I hope you have a, a good couple of weeks. I'm looking forward to finally watching Bordeaux this season um, in 
was it two weeks time so but till the next time we're all back together everyone at home take care stay safe and goodbye for now bye bye <laughs>